Hello and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson. Uh, that's right. I just finished my PhD. So that actually means that the next couple of weeks will have some interruptions in the podcast release schedule. I'll cover that at the end of the episode. Uh, but for now, congratulations me, I guess. Anyhow, this is a continuation of our weekly mini-series covering the 100 years of history since the appearance of fascism in the modern world in the 1920s. This week, we are talking about the 1990s. Now, the big takeaway for this week is that this is a time of the rise of like serious anti-federal government conspiracy type ideology in the United States, as well as the fallout of the collapse of the Soviet Union and the Soviet system in Eastern Europe and Russia, both of which produced some very important and extremely influential trends on the right wing that are still existent today and that are still very important. First, we're going to talk about some of these effects in Germany, partly a result of the reunification of Germany in the you know process that began in the late 1980s and concluded in the early 1990s. As a part of this reunification process, there was a lot of growth in right-wing political activity, both in what had been Western and what had been Eastern Germany, specifically right-wing activity targeting migrants, immigrants, refugees, a lot of this resulted in several race riots and also arsons of houses where migrants were living. One example is the rostock lichthagen riot, uh, which was centered on a refugee housing settlement in uh, the German city of Rostock, uh, which is on the Baltic Sea. Another is the uh, Heierswada riots, uh, which initially began attacking Vietnamese migrants and uh, ended up attacking a group of people from Mozambique. Uh, there was also an arson in Solingen, uh, which was an attack on the home of Turkish immigrants, Turkish immigrants being one of the largest group of migrants in Germany, specifically uh, in Western Germany. Uh, five died in this arson attack, uh, including three children. There were several other arsons, some of them attempted, some of them successful in the same time period, which is the early 1990s, uh, which is a period of major growth for neo-Nazi movements in Germany and especially in Eastern Germany as the economy collapsed with the fall of the Soviet system and also as Soviet serious bans on right-wing activity gave way to more generalized Western European style approaches to talking about the right wing. Now, in Russia, the fallout of the Soviet Union's collapse was, of course, significantly more devastating. Uh, the Russian social system, its economy, it all collapsed in the early 1990s with the fall of the Soviet Union. This resulted in a series of difficult power grabs and power moves on the part of lots of politicians, uh, the most important and influential of which was, of course, Yeltsin's seizure of control from the Soviet Union to create the Russian state that is you know, the government of Russia today. The second most important of these, however, was a coup slash constitutional crisis that was an attempt to remove Boris Yeltsin from power. Now, this is an extremely complicated scenario, um, but the long and the short of it is that Yeltsin, who is the president of Russia, uh, was trying to engage in a serious power grab. He was trying to dissolve a part of the government that the Russian constitution did not enable him to dissolve. He was ultimately successful in doing this. However, he was opposed stringently. Uh, by several more extremist organizations in Russia, some of them communist, but some of them fascist. One of these, uh, which ended up against the president, against President Yeltsin, was a group called Russian National Unity. And I'm going to talk about them now. 
Russian National Unity was founded in 1990, uh, essentially during the and immediately after the collapse of the Soviet Union. It was founded by a man named Alexander Barkashov, and it is a pretty standard fascist paramilitary organization. Their stated ideology was to seek to expel non-Russians from Russian territory after the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, they engaged in vandalizing graves, street brawls, attacks, attempted murders, all the sorts of things that you would expect from a standard fascist paramilitary organization, including, as I noted above, participating in an extra-legal, violent attempt to seize power in the Russian state. Now, National Unity was ultimately unsuccessful in this. They chose the losing side in that particular constitutional crisis. But that didn't mean that they failed or completely stopped to continue to organize as a paramilitary group. In fact, they continued through the 1990s and actually gained a significant amount of steam. They became significantly more powerful throughout the 1990s. Uh, ultimately, they ended the decade uh, being around 20 thousand, twenty-five thousand strong, which is pretty big for a fascist paramilitary organization. They do still exist. Uh, however, they have lost ground and their leader has um, sort of declined in power and prestige as the Russian state itself has come to be more and more directed and governed by precisely the ideology that he is promoting, you know, uh, Russian supremacism, essentially, and the idea that Russians that is, white Russians, ethnic Russians, should be in control of the Russian state and that other people should be expelled from it. Uh, also, the sort of like irredentism that Vladimir Putin has espoused regarding, for example, Ukraine and other former parts of the Soviet Union, which uh, he and other Russian nationalists believe are uh, rightfully Russian. You know, that's their, that's their position on that. Moving on to the United States, I'm going to talk about two of the main features of the right wing in the United States. Now, the right wing in the United States in the 1990s was characterized by the same kind of neo-Nazi organizations and things like that that I've talked about in the 1970s and the 1980s. But in this episode on the 1990s, I want to talk about some of the relatively newer features, or at least features that came to the forefront in the 90s and really characterized that decade on the right wing. These two are the sort of like anti-government, anti-federal positions and anti-abortion violence. I'm going to start by talking about the anti-federal government position. Now, if you've seen King of the Hill, the you know cartoon show, uh, you might remember the character of Dale Gribble. Dale Gribble is a parody of exactly this ideology. You know, he wanders around yelling and creepily talking about, you know, UN helicopters spying on everybody and one world government and stuff like that. This is that ideology, the anti-federal government ideology. Uh, it was a major thrust of the right wing in the 1990s, although it had been around before, and it continues to be there to this day. Uh, there are a lot of people on the right wing, uh, for example, Ted Bundy, who really come from this trend in the right wing, you know, like the belief that the federal government doesn't have the jurisdiction to do X, Y, Z, or that it's overreaching its authority or something like that. The sovereign citizens movement, which I'll talk about in uh, future episodes. It's also a major part of this ideological trend. Uh, in the 1990s, however, the anti-federal government ideology had its uh, biggest flashes of violence and, unfortunately, therefore, power over the national zeitgeist and how our government was operating. 
Uh, some three of these examples were uh, a siege in a place called Ruby Ridge, uh, which is in rural Idaho, Oregon area. It was a standoff between federal officials and the family of a man named Randy Weaver, uh, who was a sort of race and government separatist type person. You know, he moved his family out to the middle of nowhere in an attempt to escape the jurisdiction of the federal government. Uh, this failed of course, because uh, he was arraigned on charges regarding firearm possession, um, and he failed to appear in court. This resulted in a prolonged standoff between federal forces and his family, uh, as well as one of his friends, um, and ultimately resulted in a shootout, uh, which uh, killed both a federal marshal and also Randy Weaver's wife and child. Now, Weaver would eventually be charged with, you know, a lot of criminal charges as a result of this. Uh, He would eventually be released from prison, and he actually died uh, very recently, last week. The second big event in this sort of, like, you know, anti-federal jurisdiction type thing is the Waco standoff, uh, which was between the Branch Dravidian cult uh, and the United States federal government, essentially. Now, this standoff, which lasted for 51 days, began as a sort of botched ATF standoff, the ATF uh, standing for Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. It's a federal law enforcement branch. Uh, So the ATF had a sort of like botched raid on this compound because they thought they were stockpiling firearms. Um, And ultimately, this standoff, gunfire, and the federal attempt to assault the building resulted in a major fire, uh, which killed essentially all of the people in the cult. Uh, 76 people, uh, 25 of them children. Now, these two events, and specifically the deaths of these children and the women in these organizations, uh, both the uh, Weaver household and the Branch Dravidian cult, galvanized a lot of anti-government ideologues. Uh, And one of those, the most important of them, was a man named Timothy McVeigh. Timothy McVeigh was a former U.S. uh, soldier, And he was motivated by his hatred for the federal government in general, and specifically for its handling of these two events, or at least those were the things that he was primarily galvanized by. Now, McVeigh was already really steeped in a lot of the right-wing ideology and practice of the 1980s and 1990s, and he and a friend of his decided that they were going to take out their hatred on the United States federal government violently, and that they were going to attack it. Specifically, he and his friend wanted to bomb a federal building and completely destroy it. Um, Not just bomb an office, but to demolish a skyscraper was their intention. And that is what they did. Uh, They chose a building that would allow them to kill as many federal employees as possible. And uh, they searched around in several states, Arizona, Missouri, and eventually decided on one in Oklahoma City. And they picked the Alfred P. Murrah building in downtown Oklahoma City. They set up a bomb at 9.02 a.m. on April 19th in 1995. And this bomb killed 168 people and injured nearly 700 others. Now, they chose this building because it housed a large number of federal law enforcement offices and other federal offices, such as the Social Security Administration. This remains the largest terrorist attack carried out by a U.S. citizen on U.S. soil. And as a terrorist attack on U.S. soil at all, it is outranked only by the September 11th attacks on the World Trade Centers. Moving on to the second major feature of right-wing violence and ideology in the 1990s is the anti-abortion movement. 
The anti-abortion movement in the 1990s grew on the violence and attempted violence that emerged in the 1980s in the United States and reached a very terrifying, uh, disgusting peak. In the 1990s, we saw the peak of anti-abortion murders, uh, with seven people murdered by anti-abortion terrorists, by anti-abortion right-wing ideologues, for being abortion providers, for working at clinics, uh, for being security personnel at them. Uh, these are the names of the seven victims of anti-abortion murders in the 1990s. David Gunn, John Britton, James Barnett, Shannon Lowney, Leanne Nichols, Robert Sanderson, and Barnett Slepian. Several others were injured in these and other attacks on abortion clinics and homes. Uh, some of these people were not killed while they were at abortion clinics actually providing health care there. Uh, they were killed at their homes or at other locations, having been targeted by anti-abortion activists uh, who engaged in political violence in order to achieve their goals. They, they murdered people because they were providing health care for women. In addition to these murders, the 1990s also saw a rise in arsons, attempted murders, kidnappings, um, even threats of mailing anthrax to the offices of abortion clinics or to the homes of people who worked at abortion clinics. Now, these attacks would continue throughout the coming decades, but the 1990s were a sort of peak of this particular type of violence. Now, that was the 1990s, and as we get closer and closer to the present, you will be seeing and hearing more things that are unfortunately familiar if you're paying attention to the right wing today. A lot of these trends are continuing, especially, of course, the rise of fascism and right wing ideologies in Eastern Europe, as well as anti-government sentiment and anti-abortion violence in the United States. All right. That was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. Please tell your friends, family, and comrades about the podcast. That's how people actually hear about it. If you enjoyed the podcast, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism, all one word and spelled out. That's also how you can reach me at Gmail, uh, 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at hist of the right, H-I-S-T of the right, and fascism 15. Again, that's 15 spelled out, all one word. Next week, I'm going to be taking a break from this weekly mini-series as I celebrate my graduation, and uh, I will be coming back to you with this mini-series when I return. Mm -hmm.